This week, a bonus episode on Chasing Amy. Written and directed by Kevin Smith. Good thing Shannon married the boring-ass podcast-making motherfucker. Settling for the boring ass, funny, funny but making motherfucker. That's the oh. line that Jay has in the uh, cafe oh. during the uh, scene with Jay and Silent Bob. Right. Okay. So welcome. <laughs> this is Oi Space Man. Used to be a Doctor Who love story, but uh, today we're not talking about anything that's remotely related to Doctor Who. No, not not at all. Um, it's not even science fiction. Well, there's. Well, the science fiction in this. Is the what if bisexuality didn't exist? <laughs> Imagine a world in which people are separated into two boxes, straight and gay. <laughs> and you have to choose one or the other, but you cannot claim both at the same time. The world is an XY axis, there is no Z. <laughs> So anyway, I'm Daniel, this is Shayna, if you're uh, just tuning in. Uh, normally we talk about Doctor Who on this podcast, but we've done some, well, this is our second bonus episode, and uh, hopefully won't be our last, um, and uh, maybe we'll start talking about queer cinema as one of our kind of uh, topics that we kind of come back to uh, Why ever would you say queer cinema, Daniel? Well, because Shayna, my, my lovely wife over there, is a... Uh, Cis queer woman. I'm so queer. Mega queer. Uh, we are polyamorous and et cetera, et cetera. Anyway. Um, so if you have not listened to our show before, welcome. So basically what happened was uh, I put up our, our most recent episode a couple of days early, and then we were just sitting and watching Chasing Amy, and we realized we had a lot to say about it, and we thought, like, hey, let's do, let's do a bonus episode. Well, let, me tell, let me tell you my perspective. Okay. I was sitting down, and I thought, you know what? I want to watch a movie that is relatively lighthearted and generally makes me happy because I grew up watching it. Um, that is to say that I saw this movie for the first time when I was like 15 or 16. I ended up crying a lot and not for good reasons. So, you know, Daniel has this weird sadistic desire to say, hey, Shane was crying about something. We should probably podcast. Well, that isn't the nature of my sadistic <laughs> desire towards you. I have other sadistic <laughs> desires towards you. But um, that was certainly the nature of... Uh, basically, you started saying some really interesting things. and uh, Thank you. We each kind of have a history with the film and with yeah. Kevin Smith. Yeah. And I thought um, it might be interesting for our listeners... For people, uh, for us, just talk about it. Yeah. So we're not really going to talk about the film. I think, like, kind of in terms of plot and characters and story, we're really going to mostly look at the gender politics of the film 
and the the sexual politics yeah and and, and those those kinds of issues um but before we get there would you um i mean what do you overall what do you think about the film i mean what's your you said you saw it when you were 15 or 16 so what do you how do, how do you feel about kevin smith as a filmmaker etc you know you know in general i do not have issues with kevin smith as a filmmaker because i saw him and already understood the kevin smith zeitgeist that was happening um i think by the time i saw chasing amy um it it was recently released onto would it have been VHS or was it a DVD? I don't even remember. Well, it would have been really, it was released on DVD sometime, I guess around because you would have seen it when you were sixteen or so, mm-hmm. fifteen, sixteen. So God, I mean, maybe it was a VHS because the the DVD was actually released fairly late, um, several years after the. Uh, anyway, on, but um, a friend brought it over. It might have and been said, a VHS. I'm sure yeah. it was released on VHS. A friend of mine brought it over and said, "You should watch this." I I probably still need to talk to her about this. Uh, years and years and years later. But yeah, it was definitely eye-opening for me. And at the time, it felt really liberating um, because she has such wonderful lines about all I want to do is love. Why should I eliminate half of my options just based on gender? And there's some really inspiring, beautiful moments but they are wrapped up in a very heteronormative, contradictory way that at the time I, I wouldn't have noticed because it was the same as every rom-com to some degree. Right. It was like a rom-com plus she's kind of gay. Watching it now and understanding how it contributed to me being closeted until I was 30. Well, not just closeted, but kind of self-denying that part of your identity. Yes. Uh, incomplete denial. Yeah, I, I, I just want to make that clear yeah. to the. You know, um, it wasn't just you were aware of yourself, but closeted, but didn't even recognize your own queerness. Yeah, and I, I look at it largely, and I see this movie, and the only thing I can think is by erasure. I mean, I there wasn't really the word queer in use at terms. Or in, well, as such queer about. would have been an epithet at that point. I mean, you know. Yeah, I, I, I mean, think it's used as an epithet in the movie. Well, there are lots of uh, kind of uh, gay epithets used in the film. Tongue in cheek, tongue uh-huh. in cheek by it's gay because characters. We're gay. By, yeah. you know, like, the, the the issues with queerness in this film and and the way it's represented, and in Kevin Smith's films uh, in general, are actually there's a lot going on. I've been thinking about it for the last day after mm-hmm. we decided we were going to do this, and kind of like prepping it in the back of my mind. And I do have some. I have some things I'll say about that, you know, in general, mm-hmm. as we as we kind of get further on. Um, I, let me talk a little bit about my experience with this film. Yeah. Um. Uh, I was a big Kevin Smith fan, like in in high school. Um, really up through uh, Zach and Mary, I was a big uh, fan. Certainly the Jersey trilogy. Um, I really haven't seen his his horror films and the more recent stuff he's done. I just have have kind of lost interest in him. Um, mm-hmm. basically once he started smoking weed. Uh, and podcasting incessantly, and uh, you once know. he started smoking weed as like his profession, yeah, which he, he lost some of his sharpness. I think you know he he's he's well because um, and, and he decided anyway. he could make more money or, or he he was more um, fulfilled just sitting and talking to a microphone than making films. And I think that one of the things that the early Kevin Smith films is is kind of 
people make fun of them or kind of talk about them as um, visually undistinctive and kind of like cheap and they look flat. Um, which I think a lot of that is unfair. I mean, I, think I do even, think that is. Unfair. I think even Clerks has some really, really interesting um, cinematography and some really interesting um, kind of camera angles and such. I mean, they considering a shot for thirty thousand dollars in a convenience store. There's mm-hmm. a ton of really interesting stuff going on visually and, in that film. And I can definitely say, knowing what I know about him now, and kind of, I have more context for it now um, than I did at the time. Even though I was alive at the time, I was just younger. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you were like nine years old when Clerks came out. Yeah, so I didn't see Clerks. Uh, actually, the I think I saw Chasing Amy and then Mallrats and hadn't seen others for a long time before I finally saw Clerks. Yeah. Probably when I met you. So for me, um, I saw Chasing Amy. Actually, I went to a residential. I went to a, to a magnet school my last two years of high school. Mm-hmm. And then every like six weeks, we'd go home for, you know, a long weekend, like a 40 weekend. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I had to ride the bus because my parents lived far enough away that they couldn't just come get me or didn't want to come get me. So, um, and then on the bus, we would like throw in there, they had VHS movies and they just throw in movies. And so I actually saw Chasing Amy for the first time on a bus with, you know, 50, 16, 17, 18 year olds. Uh, Who chose Chasing Amy for a... One of the, one of the fellow students like had the, had the VHS, so threw it in. Like, okay. I watched my first Mystery Science Theater 3000. Uh, VHS on, on that same bus on another time, you know, like it was, and, and good and so, memories. Um, yeah, it was actually, it was actually kind of like, so I remember seeing this film and, you know, on a tiny little screen in the front of a bus, you know, kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, while I'm writing and maybe I had a book or something and, uh, just kind of like being astonished with the level of kind of graphic sexual detail and the kind of, um, you know, you can you can say like come shot in a movie like you know you can talk about this kind of stuff like it's it's a well, it's and, a thing you can do and um, for me it was something i did not go <laughs> to a boarding school it was not a boarding school it was a it was a magnet school magnet school you made me sound like i'm some upper class twit or something you know oh yes yeah, a jeeves uh, came and picked me up in the in no. chasing amy in the back of the limo no I was going to public school. I lived in El Paso, Texas, which is a border town. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a group of friends that were very sexually open and we talked about things a lot. We were all in community theater together, you know, so stereotypes, if you will. I vividly remember watching this movie in my living room with my friends. And, you know, I'll, I will probably mention this a bit more later experiencing it then and knowing kind of that I felt like it almost gave me a voice, uh, but then I moved to Tennessee and and, and a particular like upper middle class to upper class, very white, very conservative area of Tennessee. Not, yeah. Not... I, I moved to Franklin, Tennessee, just out, mm-hmm. outside of Nashville where, where uh, Billy Ray Cyrus lives and Al Gore has a house there. And you know, Al um... Gore does not have a house in Franklin. Anyways, very wealthy people live in Franklin, Tennessee. So, I mean, it's it, it is a very emotional movie for me. It is a very formative movie for me, and I hadn't watched it in a while. And I was looking for that sense of, you know, going home uh without really having a hometown and thinking about watching this movie and my friend and feeling supported and feeling like, "Oh my god, 
I have gay friends, and for the first time I'm seeing gay people on TV, like, what? Or in a movie, and they're not being portrayed as, like, super weird. Like, the gay people in this movie are the cool kids, as far as I'm concerned. I don't know if Kevin Smith feels that way. I, I think we'll I think we'll talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so rewatching it kind of felt like the saying of well, you can never go home again because yeah, a lot of a lot of it just hit me completely differently now because I have a very different perspective on uh my identity and my life and Kevin Smith. Honestly, but I will say Joey Lauren Adams, yes, was one of my first in my head acknowledged I would do things with her um, well, because of this movie. As as we all would in this right. film, uh, you know, uh, she's and she, she's a revelation in this film, and it's, it's she's a, a fucking powerhouse. It's in kind this of movie. astonishing that she didn't have a a kind of longer career. I, I I'm kind of surprised. I don't know. think so, and we'll say why in a minute. <laughs> well, go ahead and go ahead and talk about that. This movie, written by Kevin Smith, about his relationship with her. Well, sort of, yeah. To some degree. Yeah, it, it, we're not really clear exactly how much of it was his relationship with Joey Lauren Adams that was kind of, but it's kind of speculated that he essentially cast Joey Lauren Adams as his. So Kevin Smith dated Joey Lauren Adams during the making of Mallrats. Yeah. And then they broke up sometime during that production. And then he wrote Chasing Amy kind of about some of the issues. So I right. don't think it's Joe Lauren Adams was, was a gay lesbian. but Needless to say, the way that she is portrayed in this movie, I feel, robs her of a lot of her agency. And going back and rewatching this from a perspective now, I understand that. And I see how much the movie undercuts her character. I mean, it could be worse, but like, you know, that was stuff that I didn't see before. Sure, but I mean, but she and, got a lot of attention because of this movie. Like, she she's front and center in this movie. Yes, but I also think that she is like... I mean, I don't think the fact that she has less agency than we'd like is necessarily the thing that like killed her career because she did have a career after this i know and she played cute kind of slutty girls you think she got typecast because of this film yes i think by playing a bisexual character and by being openly sexual in a very low budget independent raw movie that she was then over sexualized because i've never seen her be given an opportunity to show this kind of range since and sure. maybe i'm haven't seen some of her smaller films or whatever but she actually i think directed something you know um, like a, like 10 years ago or something like she's i don't you know. know but there was a lot of going back through this that i not only was disappointed with the treatment of her character but in a more profound way i was also disappointed at we'll talk about the ending the other gay characters in this movie because there is no such thing as bisexual. Like you've the, the word had... bisexual is not mentioned in this film. At all. It's gay, lesbian, straight. Those are the those are the like categories that right. exist in this film. The the word bisexual is not mentioned. And don't worry, I have I have some stuff to say about that and why that's why that is. Um because I did a bit of research and, and uh but but I so um for me, this film, kind of growing up, and, and this is actually a film that I kind of bought the DVD soon after it was released, because mm -hmm. it was released fairly late. 
Um, I was a I was a big Kevin Smith fan. I have this is a movie I used to just put on like like the director and like the cast and crew commentary of. Mm-hmm. Like I used to just put it on as like kind of happy, you know, just something to sit and enjoy on a you know Sunday afternoon sort of thing. I've probably seen this film at least twenty times in the last uh, you know fifteen years or so. Although I haven't, uh, I mean, it was kind of I kind of went through a period where I was watching it a lot, you know, yeah. just kind of putting it on, but then you know didn't watch it for a number of years and then kind of came back to it. Um, it's a film that I mean, I'll <laughs> not to speak out of turn, you know. You know, the fundamental thing about the film is, you know, a, a man who falls in love with a lesbian. And, you know, that's she, happened to me a couple of times. You know? <laughs> and she falls in love back, which has also happened which to me. Which has also happened to me a couple of times. Um, you know, self-described lesbians. It has happened to me that I am the one dude that a self-described lesbian is interested in. So we'll just leave it there. Yeah. So, I mean, it is kind of one of those. Um, and obviously, I... You know, I identified, you know, to some degree with the holding character, the the, the bank character. And, uh, you know, Kevin Smith's kind of frankness about sex, you know, as he perceives it. Yeah. Is the big, is really his big selling point, especially in those first few films. Um, He's very open about his own kind of sexual desires and, um, you know, his own experiences. And that's something that was, it felt very, I mean, I remember seeing this in 1998 yeah. or so when I first saw it. So I was probably 18, 17, 18. And I remember just thinking this was like, radical like like that this was yeah really pushing like i couldn't believe some of the shit that they do in this film um when i was but you know i grew up in alabama and you know right i was 18 years old i mean i had access to the internet but this was the first like movie i had seen that talked about things to the level that i was comfortable talking about and it's still a romantic comedy to some degree it's very much it's almost a woody allen film in terms and and i think i I think that that's what i cook kept coming back to um because I watched it and we almost immediately podcasted right after but I'm glad because what I've been thinking about is how I have a lot of friends who I think have the the rom-com dream disease mm-hmm. where life should be like a romantic comedy uh your significant other should be able to read your thoughts and know exactly what you want and everything will be perfect and you'll have some kind of quirky meat cute and everything needs to be like it is in the movies um with all the bad scenes deleted like we know the bad scenes are there whatever we all know that there are issues with that this was a representation of a rom-com that was different unfortunately watching it now i'm not happy with how it's different anymore um i i don't feel that the people who really are saying the things that I identify with mm-hmm. are given that much time on screen. And yep. that's primarily Hooper and Alyssa being just Alyssa. And um I, I think you said even the one scene with her lesbian friends was added in. So um this is a film that's fundamentally about Kevin Smith's experience, and it's hugely metatextual. Um, uh, one of the things I actually, uh, on my other podcast, it was Swedish Run on Sight, we actually covered this film as part of a sex comedy series, and we did Clerks Chasing Amy and Clerks 2 in, in kind of one episode. So we did kind of a overview of the film, and so you can kind of have more of my thoughts about the film in general if you go listen to that. Um, but we really didn't get into kind of the, the sexual politics and that sort of thing, which is mm-hmm. kind of what we're covering today. I just wanted to throw that in before mm-hmm. I forgot. Um, again, for me in 1998 or so, it felt very new and raw and it felt really interesting. It felt really, um, 
like I suddenly like I suddenly saw myself represented on screen. You know mm-hmm. that Holden McNeil. I'm I'm the person that these films were made for. That these Jersey trilogy. Mm-hmm. You know I you know nerdy guy in my you know teens and early twenties right around the turn of the millennium uh with a little bit of disposable income to buy you know dvds and action figures like those are mm-hmm. you know uh th- these are my people or were my people i have been increasingly disengaged from yeah. my people as as i've yeah. uh, realized just how toxic the straight white male you know, I, I think is. and part of the thing that was so heartbreaking to me this time is i used to love banky I have no idea why anymore. He's well. He's absolutely kind of the lovable bad guy, like the lovable villain of the film, because yeah. he's absolutely portrayed as, you know. And this is where I think you and I might differ a little bit, and and our and our differing positionality definitely plays into this. You know, I think that Banky is basically. I think Kevin Smith intends him, and I think he reads as a kind of closeted gay man or a closeted bisexual man who has deep feelings for Holden, but who uh, sublimates those desires through a kind of latent homophobia. In the in the same way, and, and if that is really the point of Banky, like it was too on the nose for me because I never believed that the right. homophobia was rooted in his own. But I think. To a, to a large degree. I think his fear of having a romantic or love attachment to another man. Okay, let's, so let's, let's leave the is Banky gay question on the table for now. Okay, I think fine. Um, or, I mean, let's just say he has this deep friendship with Holden. He feels for Holden what we might call a sexual thing or maybe just a, suddenly a girl shows up and he feels threatened. Yes. And a girl that, represents Holden growing past Banky's kind of sophomoric, you know, homophobic humor and, you know, kind of perspectives and that sort of thing. Like, Alyssa for Holden represents a a growth in a positive direction, not just in terms of his personal kind of I fall in love and I'm happy and I'm getting mm-hmm. all the time, but a, a political change in Holden's perspective. You even get a scene where Holden like criticizes Banky's, uh, you know, calling the uh, the the uh, the video game a uh, a homophobic slur. You know? Yeah, and I get that, but you also get the scenes where Holden is uncomfortable because Alyssa and Banky are sharing stories, <laughs> and those are that's when I loved Banky, and that's kind of what I started to realize. Banky's issue is he's just kind of a redneck in my mind. Oh, like he's a New Jersey redneck. Well, well there's absolutely this perspective. Or, hey, I think that what Holden in that scene you're yeah. thinking you're talking about the scene in the uh, in the bar in New York where they're comparing uh, battle scars. Yeah, which is probably the funniest scene in the film. It's one of the best scenes of all time. It's, it's to be one fair. of the it's one of the great like uh, sequences. Uh, I mean, it's it's just so great. Um, ne- never before. I don't I don't know that I've ever seen a film devote that much time to a conversation about cunnilingus. Yeah. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Um, well, and the pride associated with it. And and I think that that's the issue for me, I think, is when the movie expects us to be gaining or losing respect for characters. Mm-hmm. And we gain respect for Banky in that scene because right. he can bro out with her. Well, not but the only reason that, but he's, he's scared of he's her like, is he, he can bro out with her. He's like... I don't go down on chicks because they never, like, he has a reason. Like, mm-hmm. it's not, she says, if you say smell, I'm going to, you know. Yeah. And Holden even says, as stupid as you normally sound during this conversation, you're going to sound a thousand times as stupid now. 
because you're talking to a lesbian and like this is yeah. just not going to happen. But that by the end of the conversation, Holden is uncomfortable and Banky is having a great ass time. I think that you read it as like Holden uncomfortable that Banky and Alyssa are kind of bonding. Is that is that kind of what? No, you're... he's okay. uncomfortable that Alyssa's talking about her her past sexual experience. That that's how I read it as well. Yeah, no, that, that and was... so you have like this kind of double image of th- a threat to masculinity. She's a threat to Banky's masculinity. Because um, she can go down on girls better than he can. Well, but She's also... She's better in bed than he is. Because she has the ability, because women have the magic power, to then draw the man away from his friend. But he gains respect for her by being able to see her as just another fucking person who he has things in common with. God forbid. Yes, he uses the racial slurs and the gendered slurs and all that kind of thing. But I still think he kind of respects... Alyssa is a person more. I, I, I think I think he does. I think that And I think Holden yeah. is all in the ideas, but and and that's that's what I'm saying. But like watching it now, that is the only way I can excuse liking him because so much well, of what he does is just like I'm an asshole. Becky's unquestionably the funniest character in the film. I mean, um much has been written about I don't know about that. Well, Banky is one of the funniest characters in the film. I apparently only have two characters in this movie that I like, and I didn't know that until yesterday or two days ago, whatever. Well, I think there are three characters you should like, but you know, I'll, I'll, we'll we'll talk about that the third character here in a second. Um, I think that Banky certainly has the the most kind of written to be funny lines. Like the point is that he mm-hmm. says these horrifying things, but he's also kind of portrayed as the dope. And that's kind of the defense that Kevin Smith will always give with mm-hmm. the, with his, with his humor is, yes, there's a lot of homophobic shit in here. There's a lot of like people using, you know. But I'm trying to language. represent how people actually are. But I'm representing how people are. And I'm giving these lines to this person that you're not supposed to identify with. You're saying, he calls it the, I mean, he says in, in another, you know, commentary, um, and in other places, he calls it the Archie Bunker theory. Like you, you put Archie Bunker on screen, you have him voice the, uh, he to say the N word, for instance, mm-hmm. so that you, because he's the dope, he's not the person you're supposed to identify with. You're supposed mm-hmm. to identify with Holden and Alyssa and, and Hooper and you know the other characters. Um, it's a you know, Kevin Smith basically, I think a lot, so many of his early films are basically about he has two characters, a kind of um, you know Dante and Randall. He's got Randall, who's kind of like out there. He's kind of you know, very sexually aggressive and very uh, broy. He's um, talks over people. Mm-hmm. He's the jerkwad, mm-hmm. and then you have the kind of quiet, more subdued Dante character, who is um, much more uh, interested in being uh, responsible and capable. And and yeah. and these are the two sides of Kevin Smith. And and ultimately, these are. So two much, so sides many of this of a white guy. Oh yeah, no, no, absolutely. You know, and that's ultimately what. I mean, you can't blame Kevin Smith for being a white guy. Yeah, you can't blame him for for making films from his perspective. No, but I think he almost gets to portray other perspectives and then cuts them short. Well, <laughs> so by and large, I agree with you. In terms of, I mean, I think this is a film that is, uh, it is deeply problematic. 
I think that I'm and I'm again, it's it's still going to be one of my favorite movies in a lot of ways, but um it's a film that meant a lot to both of us when we saw it as teenagers. But for me it's it no longer like stands the test of time like a slap in the face. In 1997, I think this was a lot more again kind of radical and interesting to because you just didn't see this content uh at that time. Uh, in 2016, there's a lot more. There are a lot more resources for this kind of thing, and you're actually seeing more kind of queer voices, uh, lesbian voices, gay voices, able to speak for themselves in a yeah. way that they weren't uh, necessarily in, in during that time. And period. I completely understand that it's an issue of time period. I am just saying there are very simple changes that could have been made where I could still like this movie. Sure. Well, uh, why don't you explicate those? One issue I have is that Hooper X just kind of disappears. And Hooper X for me is really the voice of um, reality in (laughs) the story. Sure. uh, Because he is playing a part. He is completely open about playing a part. But then he also talks really casually, comfortably. And I love that actor. I always forget his name. Dwight Yule. Thank you. I was a Kevin Smith super fan for long enough that I actually know the names of almost every cast member of his first, like, six films. I'm sure you do. But you have, essentially, before I think really the terms existed, you know, code changing. You have um, an example of how he's having to hide his homosexuality to make a living, but he is also being exploited for other aspects of what minority he well, represents. Well, Hooper X is writing a comic called White Hate and Coon. <laughs> but because it sells, and, like, he's very straightforward about that, and he's also arguably not wrong. Maybe it's extremist, but I would much rather be on the extremist side of uh, White Hate and Coon than I would Blunt Man and Chronic to some degree. Well, I mean, what is always Spaceman day. except where the <laughs> white hate and coon of the Doctor Who podcasting world, sure. right? Yeah, you know, that's who we are. Um, if I get two downloads, I feel like John Grisham. Yeah, I love her. <sighs> um, but his whole PR stunt, the idea that he had to trade, he's trading this image of black militantism. Mm-hmm. Well, in a um, very 90s version, I mean... You know, the comic book world at that time was was just kind of coming to grips with uh, the idea that, you know, hey, let's actually have, like, black characters in the books that are not, like, minstrels effectively. You know, let's let's actually do real representation. And, you know, it was still, like, written by a bunch of white guys. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know. And And there's still a shit ton of problematic stuff with it. The scene with him and Holden where they're in the... CD store. <laughs> so I we were at a party last night, and I was talking to someone, and uh, she says uh, she said a sentence that three parts of this sentence very clearly indicated it was the '90s to me, and I'm going to tell you this sentence right now. Um, she says, uh, "I bought mm-hmm. a CD mm-hmm. at the mall." <laughs> yeah. Uh, and she was telling a story from like 1993 or something. So, uh, but it was very much that moment of like, wow, that is, that is, I feel very yes. old right now thinking that. Like, I think the, somebody followed it up with a, was it at FYE? Yeah. No, no, no one, uh, no one has done that in at least 15 years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well. 
Not um, not quite true, but you know, it's certainly not a thing that happens. Anyway, so they're at the end and it's not the end of the movie, and it should be in some ways. And I think this is where it started getting really, really difficult for me. Is at the CD store where Hooper basically says, like, dude, get over your fucking self. Well, and not just that, he says his friend is sitting there basically saying, I'm trying to like this gay girl and I'm finding it difficult because my white privilege is getting poked at. Mm-hmm. That is Holden's whole issue. I mean, it's, it's his idea of white male, like it's, it's white fragility. It's, it, it's 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 well, it's straight fragility. It's it's you all know, of it's, that. You know, he is afraid of what it is to live life outside the norm, even though he feels like he was living outside the norm. But now he would really be living outside the norm, the outside the norm that is not safe. That is that you know you can be hurt over. And so when you have the black male gay man Mm -hmm. who is literally in every scene dressed like he's ready for combat. He's dressed like Louis Farrakhan or something. And And then he says, I'm the minority of the minority of the minority. Ain't ain't nobody looking out for me except myself. Well, he said, ain't nobody looking out for my black ass, I think is the actual line. Fair enough. That line Mm -hmm. is still true. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I immediately realized that part of what was just so hard for me is this movie could have been about him dating a trans girl. This movie could have uh, about Hooper dating a trans girl? Holden dating Holden? a trans girl. Yeah. Like, Alyssa, it's, it's not even her bisexuality. It's this fact that she is different sexually whatsoever. Absolutely. That is just terrifying to him. And he will sit and talk to his gay friend, who he has shown throughout the movie as going out of his way to support this guy. Mm -hmm. You know, he's slumming it to go see him. At his panel appearance, you mean? At his panel appearance, yeah. But then, you know, they go out. What's a Nubian? Bitch! You almost made me laugh. Ugh, I love him so much. I'll be your victim, but not your catcher. To not have Holden recognize that moment as a moment where maybe he should talk to Hooper a little more. Like, maybe Hooper might actually have a fucking lot more insight Mm -hmm. into Alyssa's situation than the white boy who feels like, okay, um, I just walked in here and now I understand I have to tell Brody he can't... And the Brody... (laughs) Banky. I, have, I have to tell Banky he can't say the mean words anymore. And he uses, like, the teacher voice, and he mansplains why you shouldn't use slurs. And it doesn't end up feeling like Holden has actually learned anything. Well, and he him, doesn't, him, because him then talking he... talking to Banky about being, uh... Him, him talking to Banky about not using the homophobic language... That happens way earlier in the film. Okay, fine. But still, they're not... The kind of differences you have here Mm -hmm. of one moment he is saying, don't do this, but in the other, he is completely blind to what is right in front of his face when his friend is talking to him. He Ultimately, this is a film about... And I think 
you and I may disagree on this. Um, I think Kevin Smith agrees that the advice that's given by Hooper is the right advice. Dude, get over your fucking self. This girl loves you. You love her. The fact that she's got sexual experience, you don't, shouldn't matter to you. Stop, stop being so full of yourself. That is the advice that Holden gets from at least two characters in this film. Yeah. From Hooper, Mm -hmm. whose dialogue is obviously written by Kevin Smith, Mm -hmm. but then also by Silent Bob in the actual Chasing Amy story and a movie titled Chasing Amy. Yeah. Where, you know, ultimately Holden gets his advice twice in the film and ultimately Holden, because he's kind of a small person and he's, he's stuck in his own, you know, kind of toxic masculinity, can't accept the fact that, like, <laughs> Alyssa's had a lot more sex than he has, but that's okay. And that's kind of fundamentally where the film kind of ends, is like... No. Well, that's it's not, not where, where the film, it ends. It's not where the film ends. The film ends with, uh, or basically it sets up He learned a lesson and it's okay. Everything is forgiven. Well, but it's not forgiven. This comic book that I wrote for you called Chasing Amy, you should feel like appreciative of that. You should say thanks, Holden. You thank you for writing about how you treated me so shitty and you're sorry. That isn't exploiting my experience. That isn't mansplaining your own bad understanding of the situation of what really happened. This is not about the gay perspective or trying to understand it. It is all about that white male perspective. It, it's it's absolutely. I mean, so uh, over on the Sudasur site, uh, we just had covered uh, Blue Velvet. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, our friend Jack Graham was on that episode. I'll mm-hmm. put a link in the show notes. And I talked a lot about Blue Velvet and about the way that it it kind of treats the kind of kink elements, the cinematic sex elements, mm-hmm. and uh, the um, difficulty because essentially. Isabella Rossellini is so good in that film, and she is portraying this so honestly mm-hmm. as a kind of sexual experience and a sexual you know kind of orientation or however you want to define that. That ultimately the film is kind of like, why are we following the Jeffrey character? As I think a reasonable question to be asking when you're kind of talking about that and film. Why is we a movie really... called Chasing Amy about Holden? Well, and it's not even about well. It's not about Amy either. It should be about Alyssa. I mean, this is essentially... And, exactly. and one of the notes, uh, one of the things, if you do watch the commentary for Chasing Amy, mm-hmm. um, they talk a lot about the development process because this did go through a studio development process. Uh, one of the notes they got from the studio was include more about Alyssa, like give more of her perspective. Uh, she She really only gets one scene like in her side of things, in her world, like without yeah. in a place where Holden is not present or kind of welcome uh and that is a scene with a you know a half dozen militant other, other lesbians, lesbians. I mean, you know 90s lesbian stereotypes can we just say that Fair enough. <laughs> um you Playing know the <laughs> but that's what i'm saying kevin smith didn't even think we needed more about Alyssa. right i mean the uh, studios the studio. Well, it was uh, there were there were uh, two producers on this film. Uh, one of whom is Bob Hawk, yeah. uh, who actually appears on the film. He's uh, one of the uh, he's the old man laughing at a comic in the when um when Hooper is uh, tending bar and he's uh, calling up Holden to get him to come and uh, there's an old man sitting and uh, reading a comic and laughing. And that's actually Bob Hawk. That's his uh, cameo in the film. Um, 
he's a gay man, and he's actually the the man who uh, first discovered Kevin Smith. He actually saw Clerks, oh. and uh, got him into Sundance and like picked it up, or uh, at Sundance and then picked it up. And Kevin Smith has a career because of Bob Hawk. Like that's, that's our, Mike Hawk, excuse me. I know how to write the first name, Bob Hawk. Uh, and then John Pearson, who's the other uh, mm. big producer, and the, you know they gave they gave that note and said, you know, we want to see Alyssa's side of this story. Ultimately, Kevin Smith is writing, you know, the 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 story of Kevin Smith writing Chasing Amy is sort of the the story he's writing. It's again very kind of self reflexive. We can wish that Kevin Smith had decided, like, no, actually, the more interesting story is Alyssa's story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's also writing. And I think this is the defense that he would make is he's like, well, I'm writing for this kind of male audience. These, you know, a bunch of these guys who are much like me when I was 20, 21, 22. Well, and that's, and that's what I'm saying. When I was younger, I felt like I was included by watching this movie. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was being somewhat represented in this movie Mm -hmm. growing up. And seeing how much this movie had nothing to do with the gay characters, nothing to do with the queerness. It's all about Holden being a fucking man-child. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it absolutely is about Holden being a man-child. But I think it's judgmental towards Holden being a fucking man-child. I don't, I don't think, think it's it is... judgmental enough. I, do, I, I would agree. It is not judgmental enough. I'm sorry. I just, I, for the amount of upset that I got, when Alyssa and he are fighting after the hockey game and she feels the need to apologize for not being more honest up front, which whatever. Um, and he shoves her away. Oh yeah. That's, that's a nasty, nasty moment. There is, I mean, it's cruel. It is some of the stuff that he says at at that point. Um, is so clearly emotionally abusive and manipulative and well he says they used you they fucking used you they made you into a little whore essentially and she and she responds back yeah. no i used them i was an experimental girl i tried it all maybe you knew what you were designed yeah. to do from the time you were born but... but you didn't but i didn't have a map and i love that scene so much and it is fairly disappointing to me. I'm sorry. I I understand that she fell in love with him and whatever, that she really wanted to be with him. But after that, in addition to then trying to whore her out to his friend, and <laughs> the when they when he proposes the three way at the end, when he proposes the three way at the end, this imagined future where Holden shows up and Alyssa is is kind of happy to see him and like, oh, look, there's a comic that you made that you apologized to me in. Fuck you back off, creepy stalker. Like, you were a blip in her history. You were a horrible, unhealthy influence. And, like, I would never want to have seen him again. So, so really, the film should end with essentially, you know, Holden having to... The way that the way that uh, Annie Hall ends, right? Yeah. Like like he never gets a a uh, you know as as problematic as Woody Allen is. Yeah. And I'm not going to pretend that that's not. But but yeah. Annie Hall ends with essentially they've broken up and then he never gets to see her again, sort of thing. You know. And it is it is that romantic comedy ending where he he meets eyes with Bangy from across the room and they have a moment. 
And then he goes over and little emotional vampire douchebag kind of soft shoulders his way in and says, mm, comic. And she's like, that's not mine. And he's like, I know it's mine. And it's just like, uh, I would not look up and see, be happy to see that person. And well, they you, clearly... you've, you've had some abusive relationships with not me. I'm just going to say I am not the abuser in this. But you've had some relationships. I've had similar experiences. I'm going to leave it at that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And to see that kind of treatment and rejection washed aside so simply, mm -hmm. um, especially when there is the implication that um, Alyssa is an assault survivor, that the sum of the sex that she had in high school was not necessarily consensual and they were her mistakes, but she made them. Um, Do you think that there's that implication that maybe she wasn't, uh, that she was forced into some situations? If you, and, and this is where I think Joey Lauren Adams is sometimes given a disservice by the direction mm -hmm. and, um, you know, this the script. But for me, it resonated the way that she is describing when when uh, Holden starts fishing for things about so at the hockey game at the hockey game, and I mean, I guess really the hockey game is where everything goes to shit for me. It was like on shaky boundaries before then, but at the hockey game, this time I I almost stopped wanting to watch the movie. And and why do you think that is? Because he's clearly being passive aggressive. He's douchebag. so passive aggressive. She's trying to de-escalate and de-escalate. She's... She's deflecting his questions she's with She's deflecting. She is saying nice things about him, even, like... And so then when she describes this... The, the finger cuffs event... I blew him while Chloe fucked me, or whatever his name is. Chloe. Chloe, yeah. It, that's not the part I'm talking about. He asks if they were friends. And he's asking this. Now, imagine this. You're a 16, 17-year-old girl. And, I'm imagining. And you have two friends who, and she says, take advantage of her parents not being home by showing up at her house a lot. And so they were friends. Okay. She's also experimental. Mm -hmm. They're she talks about drinking and stuff yep. at that age. If at 16 or 17, or however old she's supposed to be in high school. Yeah, late in high school. The 16, one of my guy friends starts chasing me around the room with his dick out. Mm -hmm. That Yeah, no, that's... The answer is either you give in to the sexual assault and you believe like you like it, when she's describing that scene, it does not seem like a positive memory for her. Yeah. I'll, and I mean, so, you're right. I mean, I, I think you could read it as, you know, they were kind of all broing out, you know, together sort of thing. And You could you know, read it that way, too, if you want to go easy on Holden. Well, this isn't, I mean, this is going easy on the other characters in the film. It, I mean, more so than, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't care whether, I mean, I have no desire to go easy on Holden. I just, I feel like so much of her experience then gets washed away. Oh, look, she goes on, she gets to be successful, but again, she has to be a lesbian now. Again, she's right. 
Well, we're going to talk about bi-erasure here in a second. Um, but it's, I will say, as someone who grew up in the 90s, that is probably the most common rape story I ever heard. Was my parents were home. The guys came and hung out. We broed out. Whatever. We had sex or something. Because there are self-worth issues. Or, you know. We don't even get to, to learn all about that. Except for her parents aren't home. So therefore she must be from a bad family. Or maybe not. She's just experimental. We don't really get a full answer. What we get is her trying to own that experience and trying to say you shouldn't have to question this because fuck you and him saying oh well you're fucking dirty and you're you're a whore because of what you did you know i think you're absolutely right like i i had never you know up until and i will you know up until the moment that you talked about this i had never questioned that as mm -hmm. anything but a kind of like vaguely high school kids being stupid high school kids and getting into weird sexual misadventures kind of thing. Yeah. But uh, I think viewing it that way, it's unquestionably a, you know, a, the story of a, a woman who's going to realize that she was raped in, in a couple of years, you know, like, like, uh, you know, jo you know, Alyssa, Alyssa Jones, Alyssa Jones is her character's name, uh, you know, wrote a think piece for Vice in 2014 where she says, you know, I was raped when I was 17, and this is what happened. Well, and, you know, I, I just read an essay, uh, and maybe I'll find it. Maybe you can just Google it. But it's it's talking about casual rape. And the thing is, the defense of rape is the 90s. That is yeah. the defense of rape in this movie. That is the defense of a, any misunderstanding of sexuality. Right. Is... Well, I'm just a guy, and I'm trying to figure this out. And and and, 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 I think and you, you say can... you have no roadmap, but if you have no roadmap, why the fuck should I get off mine? I think that you can absolutely say, you know, it's a good thing, Holden McNeil, that you're trying to learn mm -hmm. about these things, and I'm I'm very proud of you for that. Um, but I think we can also say you deserve to not be listened to until you do understand these things on these topics. And the fact that and I think that is even cutting him slack because ultimately, you know, there are a couple places this movie should have ended for me after he shoves her away and silent Bob just basically calls him a dick. Yeah. So, I mean, silent Bob is the third character. I think you should, you should respect in the film. Because yeah. Silent Bob. Is... I don't respect Silent Bob because it's Kevin Smith writing himself in to give the good line, and that line shouldn't have been his. That line makes one hundred and one million times percent more sense if it had come from Hooper. Well, Hooper did give that line, but Holden didn't listen. It's only when it's only when he's told by the other kind of perceived white straight male character. Yes. But, 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 I mean, that's not, I mean, you're right that Holden is a dick because he should have, like, A, never pushed, A, he should never have made a big deal out of this to begin with. B, he should not have pushed Alyssa away in the parking lot. C, he should have fucking listened to his gay black friend Hooper when Hooper told him stop being a shithead. Mm -hmm. I mean, and he should they, have actually been listening and internalizing what Alyssa had told him from the beginning. Instead of, like, faking it. He, 
he does fake it and he does like think, oh, I can go on and be, you know, my, you know, he, he doesn't understand that Alyssa is gay or lesbian or queer or bisexual or however. He doesn't understand that Alyssa's sexuality has nothing to do with him. Right. If they are together, suddenly her sexuality must be all about him. You know, it is that fragile masculinity, that idea that, you know, you can sleep with all the girls that you want. That doesn't scare me. But if you slept with a guy, now I'm concerned. Well, it goes back to this idea, and I read this on Tumblr mm-hmm. a, a couple of days ago, and, you know, it's it's a, th- this idea that, um, you know, there there is this thought that for, for so many men, you know, girl, girl sex just doesn't count. Or and the movie has a whole conversation about it. And, and it... It is like this whole thing, this this conflicted thing, because depending on which sections of this film you look at and what angle you take on it, you can kind of say, well, Kevin Smith kind of gets it as much as you can expect a 26-year-old you know, kid from New Jersey to understand these things in 1997. But also there are things that he just fundamentally doesn't get. Yeah. And, you know, I think that we can absolutely look at the ending of the film where, you know, we're kind of supposed to think Holden has grown and changed and... You know, that, that that's sort of, uh, I mean, that is, that is Kevin Smith's final take on it. And that is not only how the comic, you know, Chasing Amy ends the same way that the film Chasing Amy ends. So, you know, we are supposed to think that Holden has, you know, kind of changed and that that is supposedly a, a good thing. Um, but yeah, but he's, absolutely... he's changed, but he missed the entire point. And, and what's kind of how just, I feel. just put that into so many words. What is the point he missed? It was never about you. I mean, it. He when he says he's sorry, he says he's sorry for losing her. He. It's. It's still the narrative is still about him. Right. When really, the the book he should have written is the story of Alyssa meeting this asshole guy who treated and how he pushed her away. I I agree with that. I agree with that. You know. If you try to give voice to the person whose voice you silenced by physically shoving them away at one point. In, in a moment of deep emotion, because that's the moment where she's sobbing. She's sorry she ever lied by omission. Whatever sins she commits in the film. I, she, I, she's got yeah. a perfect character. Uh, whatever sins she commits in the film, she absolutely is trying to embrace him and trying to make things right mm-hmm. in that moment in the in the hockey rink parking lot. And he just shoves her away. And what kills me then is later when he has them both on the couch. And you mentioned this to me that all of her, the shots that were just close-ups on her during the, the his shot, speech, The shot, I, I know this because I know the production history of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the close-up shots on Joey Lauren Adams were shot at the very end of the day, like like near midnight. Like it was, it was late. There is a rawness to her reaction that... Um, I don't think I, I really related to before. I think in the past I watched this and thought like, okay, you call him an asshole for, for suggesting a threesome, but like, you could probably still work that out because I kind of feel like, I don't know, there's a hopeful tone at the end. And I guess that's what bothers me, Mm -hmm. um, is because she says, please don't objectify me by the sex that I've had. And he says, okay, well, let me objectify you by the sex I'm having with you. 
and and, and that's what by she offering says. a three way by yeah. trying to suggest a three way yeah yeah by <laughs> saying that he gets to decide now what she does with her pussy because well, can, they're in a relationship can we just say that like this is such a <sighs> privileged white dude thing to do go like oh, i've considered all the angles i figured this out see if i do this then you and know that's the thing <laughs> you watch her face that whole scene and she... you watch her body language that whole scene you see her slowly getting harder and more drawn in and more attacked and from my point of view more triggered mm-hmm. more It's okay. Shanna Shanna's trying just a little bit here. Um this is we've we've had we've had a rough few weeks with some stuff and uh we're not gonna talk about the details on that, but But do you have that experience with someone? And she says it, she's like, you know, I love you and I'm always going to love you. And that's why that hurts. Yep. Is he completely? He may again. It's it has nothing to do with Holden, and he never realizes that. For me, and the fact that the film doesn't realize that it's not really about Holden is is the is the biggest indictment of it on on a on a pure character level on a pure yes. character level. Um, because there's there's the kind of larger political conversation, and I do want to talk about that yeah. um, briefly um, here in a sec. But. Yeah, no, so watching that scene was really hard for me, because I just, there's two reasons maybe Joey Lauren Adams wasn't hugely successful. This might be the only character she can play, because she's kind of playing herself, and so therefore she gets typecast and sexualized, but um, it is one of those performances where... In a movie that is so much about facade mm-hmm. and and kind of the roles we play, even Alyssa when she's with um girlfriends is butched up a bit and like tells them to go get a drink and stuff. Whatever, I don't. There's care. there's a performativity thing that's going on throughout the film. I understand that, but to see that moment where Holden is at his douchiest, fakest, most disingenuous point. Where he's saying, yes, the only way to solve our problems is to solve my problem and make things better for me the way that I think that they would be better. My desire to have a sexual experience that matches what you've done is more important than your desire to leave that behind. Or Or your consent. Well, or, I know, think like he, I think he is. The whole point of the conversation is to, is to have a yeah. personal conversation. I mean, he is asking for consent. You know? Yeah, I, I don't. I think I, though that conversation probably should have happened not with all three of them. Anyway, well, and that's the that's the very like dude, bro. I've considered all the options. I have done the math on this. I, yeah, you know, yeah. None um, of your, neither of your um opinions really matter. You just got to say yes. He literally says to both of them, like individually, at one yeah. point. Be quiet. I need to finish this, and I need to tell you yeah. what what's going to work here because I've thought about this, you know. Yeah. And that's um, and it, it's absolutely holding us. I mean, I saw this when I was seventeen, or kind of watching this, you know, in my early twenties, and just like 
for for me it was such a like why does he do this this is such a stupid thing to do and like why does the film in this way because it's such like i mean he just becomes so unlikable and it's such a horrible thing for him to to do to these two people he claims to care about it seems to come out of left field and then as i got older i realized no this is completely a realistic thing that this guy would do because he's kind of been a douchebag throughout the entire film yeah um and I think that we can disagree to the point to which Kevin Smith knows that Holden McNeil is a douchebag yeah. throughout the entire film. I think that I'm a little bit more forgiving, but I think we broadly agree that, you know, like there are some really big blind spots that Kevin Smith had in 1997. When Bisexuality being the largest. Well, let's talk about, let, let's get in. I, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to say that. You and I disagree a bit. There's a little bit of light between us in terms of how much slack we want to cut this film. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we broadly agree on the on the big strokes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, let's talk about bisexual erasure. So, the singer in the uh, bar in New York, in front of the Pete's Wicked sign, who uh, introduces Alyssa to uh, sing her uh, sing the song, the uh, the beautiful song that Alyssa sings in the middle of the film. This actress is a, a young lady named Guinevere Turner. I know I recognize her, but I couldn't remember from what else. Okay. Gwen Turner mm-hmm. is uh, Joan Lauren Adams' character's name in uh, Mallrats, actually. Mm. That's intentional. Guinevere Turner was a uh, screenwriter and wrote um, a film called Go Fish in 1994. Um, she would go on to co-write or to write for a director named Mary Heron. She wrote the American Psycho script and the uh, Notorious Betty Page script. Um, she is a lesbian. Uh, she has been an out lesbian. She's been in the filmmaking mm-hmm. world for twenty something for twenty, you know, twenty two years now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but she is a lesbian, not a bisexual woman, not a queer woman. She was very active in the you know kind of. Gay mm-hmm. and lesbian cinema of the early nineties. Mm-hmm. She was the person that Kevin Smith gave this script to, to ensure that it is, it was representing. It was the gay enough. Well, I mean, to as as a no, as a, know. you know, this is what you do. I, I think it's a completely reasonable thing to do. I think that the fact that now, and I totally respect Guinevere Turner um, in terms of sure. you know, um, but I think the fact that he ba- he gave the he gave the script to one person and it was a lesbian filmmaker he knew mm-hmm. um and highly respected there are some uh, clear links between uh, go fish and uh chasing amy and, and some of the sequences and some of the plot details are, are similar um of course <laughs> appropriation time here chasing amy was way way more successful than go fish yeah yeah this movie made 12 million dollars on a 250 thousand dollar budget this was a hugely successful film for Miramax in uh 1997 yeah I think what is so deeply problematic for me and what kind of hit me with this, and it's not just Chasing Amy's fault, it's it's the timing of me deciding to rewatch it at this time where I am more aware of bi erasure in the 90s and have heard more experiences and um, I have been in communities where you know, you're gay or a lesbian and uh, bisexuals are were seen as greedy. I grew up several times thinking maybe I was bisexual, um, but fearing what would happen if I, like, 
you know, committed to that. That, like, well, somebody's going to say I'm a lesbian and then none of the boys will ever date me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what if I don't like girls and then I'm choosing to be a lesbian, which, I mean, it's the one thing my mom ever said to me about being gay was... You know, it's not that I would ever have anything wrong with it. I would just be afraid for you because it's a much harder life to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is kind of part of the essence of what this movie is lacking is just it is all about how hard it is to be Holden McNeil and or O'Neill or whatever his name is. Holden McNeil. I said it right the first time. It's so much about how hard it is to be him and to want to be the right person. Mm-hmm. And that's what I I always wanted the movie to be about. Watching it this time, it felt much more like, well, if you want to be the right person and you try, that's enough. It's and and while I think we can respect wanting and trying, mm-hmm. it's not enough. You still have to actually succeed. Yeah. And it requires a self-honesty and a self-reflexivity. And, you know, I am certainly not perfect. I am very far from being perfect on these things. Um, well, and it's like, Holden asks his his friend, who he makes fun of for his use of homophobic slurs, which we we did skip over a little bit, the fact that Banky, like, straight up is like, why are you suddenly against this? Right. That's that's my issue with Holden is and one of the reasons I think I give Banky some slack is he's not changing. He hasn't really been exposed to anything to make him want to change. Right. But Holden has and he holds that over Banky's head. Like we don't say that now. And Banky's essentially like, "Wait, what? Like I don't see you anymore and now you're telling me what how to talk." And there is an issue of just that kind of communication and why I don't think Holden would be the one to come to that conclusion first. Honestly, I feel like Banky accepts Alyssa after they trade stories at the bar. You think that Banky doesn't show the character growth he should by like he should accept Alyssa as like kind of just one of the guys at, at a, to a certain degree? And Yeah. <laughs> In a way, this is kind of a failure that, that no one considered polyamory, right? Because... Like a, a kind of Banky Holden friendship that doesn't, like a kind of romantic attachment <laughs> combined with like Alyssa and, uh, Holden being in a, you know, kind of romantic and sexual relationship might have served all their needs perfectly well. And, and why can't that happen? <laughs> it's because the two straight white guys just can't get over themselves. <laughs> and that's kind of how I feel about the movie now is I, I am so disappointed. By just how white it is. I forgot. Oh, yeah, there's, there's like one black person in the movie. And he's well, two. The little boy he talks to. Oh, right. Which, ugh. That's an adorable scene, isn't it? You see that? That's the white man. That's the devil. I, I honestly, like, I still, now I want to go up to little black children and say, you see that man? <laughs> see devil. that man? That's the devil. Just point out, just have him look at me and go, that the devil. Mm-hmm. You know? That's the devil. All white men are the devil. We Chasing are. Amy, colon, all white men are the devil. That's kind of, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, no, yeah, that's, that's, how, the... that's how Kevin Smith comes out on it. And I just kind of want to say, you know what, Kevin Smith? No. 
your problems are not the biggest problems in the world. And I'm sorry. I understand he was in his 20s and he was edgy and he was new and there's all this stuff. But I'm not in my 20s anymore. Mm -hmm. But watching this movie from the perspective of a 30-something, I'm like, Jesus, this is such a 20-something view of the world. Yeah, no, very much. It feels so... It's very much written by a guy who was 26 in 1997, you know? And an emotionally immature. And emotionally immature. And... I I guess, I guess, I kind of just have a, like, I kind of have a hard time blaming it for being what it is, you know? Um, especially since he was doing better when he was 26 than I was when I was 26. Yeah, but... But I think as a, as a product, as a kind of artistic product, I would absolutely agree with everything that you have to say in terms of, uh... The, the lack of representation, the, the political issues. But Kevin that, Smith got to be the one that succeeded because he was the white guy talking about the gay kids. Yeah. And he got to exploit his friends and... and he, he, he's absolutely appropriating gay culture and, and, and lesbian culture in, in terms of making his films. And, and doing then, it badly a lot and, of the time. And writing on the backs of, you know, dick and fart jokes. And he's, you know, I think that... So, okay, I'm going to tell you about a young lady... Young lady named Leela. Mm-hmm. Not the Doctor Who Leela. <laughs> or the Futurama Leela. Or the Futurama Leela. Although, this young lady was about as badass as those two uh, young ladies. Um, so you're familiar with the Evening with Kevin Smith uh, discs? So, in the first of those DVDs, which is a, it's, it's a fun, like, basically, Kevin Smith did a bunch of Q&As on college campuses, and he still does them, uh, you know, like Comic-Con and all that sort of thing, but... Uh, one of the ways he built his career and built his popularity was he did Q&As on college campuses. And, you know, hundreds, if not like a thousand people would show up to these mm-hmm. things. And uh, they were big events. Because um, he's just a funny guy. He's a funny guy. He did. He would tell stories for like four hours when they like slotted him for two hours and that sort of thing. Very he's Very, very entertaining. Blah, blah. Basically, his podcasting empire is built on his facility with doing this. He's mm-hmm. very, very entertaining. Mm-hmm. Um He's doing one of these. He's telling his dick and fart jokes. He's doing. He's having a great time. Um, I love this DVD. I mean, it's a great. Mm-hmm. Little, it's a great. If you like Kevin Smith, it's a great way to mm-hmm. wallow a couple hours. A uh, young woman named Leela. Mm-hmm. She comes to the microphone. It's Q and A. She says her name. She spells her name. It's L E L A, and she identifies herself as a lesbian who has some issues with uh, chasing Amy. She doesn't like chasing Amy. She thinks that the point of chasing Amy is, you know, all a lesbian really needs is a good deep digging. And Kevin Smith, he talks over her. He doesn't give her really a chance to talk. He responds to the objection he thinks she's making instead of the objection she's making. Oh, what a surprise. He, uh... That sounds just like Holden. Defends himself. He defends himself by saying, you know, I'm speaking to the uh, larger, uh, to, I'm, I'm trying to, Put gay stuff in the minds of the kind of heterosexual white dudes that buy my shit instead of. I'll you know, go support the panels by slumming it, but I I still gotta write my blunt man in chronic. He he's writing his blunt man in chronic, and he made Dogma right after chasing Amy, but then he made Jan Silent Bob Strike Back right after that, which is absolutely the kind of blunt man in chronic movie again, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, so Kevin Smith in you know nineteen ninety or in two thousand one when this incident happened is in uh, no way uh, 
kind of aware of the issues with with Holden McNeil. Um, I actually not only did I I find so um, I'm going to link that video. Um, I I did mm-hmm. find the little there's a little ten minute section, and I recommend everyone listening to this podcast to go watch that. Um, mm-hmm. But I also found a PhD thesis entitled "Falling Out of the Closet: Kevin Smith, Queerness, and Independent Film." This is a thesis written in 2008 by Carter Michael Souls. Um, and it's uh, 400 and something pages long, so I did not read the entire thesis. Um, it's essentially... It's a doctoral a, thesis? Yeah, it's a doctoral thesis. Okay, so we'll doctor... Doctor, well, uh, presuming this was accepted for his, so, so doctor, you know... If it's on the uh, side of yes. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a PDF, it's from the University of Oregon, and... Uh, <laughs> I did not read uh, Dr. Soul's full um, mm-hmm. analysis of the of, of Kevin Smith and queerness, um, but he definitely talks a lot about this incident. He goes on for something like ten or fifteen pages, talking specifically detailing all of the issues with Kevin Smith's perspective mm-hmm. in this um, interchange with the young woman named Leela. And uh, I think when I saw this, because I've watched this thing several times, and Kevin Smith is clearly uncomfortable having this having the political conversation especially within this crowd um he he makes jokes he he diminishes the the importance of it etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. um dr souls absolutely um rips him a new one rips him a new one thank you um and uh, i would i'll put a link to that in the show notes and i'll and i'll tell you what page to go to 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 read this because it's i mean it, it's worth kind of awesome. looking at um dr souls analysis um but also i mean if you watch it with the point of view of like Kevin Smith is talking over this girl, he's not giving her the chance to talk. Yeah. She is speaking to it. She is holding her own. She is doing her best mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, there's a really famous guy, a really smart guy who's mm-hmm. really good at, you know, really charming and really clever. Arguably really smart. Well, I mean, he's a, he's a clever guy. He's, he's a, he's a, he's a clever writer. He's, he's very facile with a microphone. Mm-hmm. And she comes up and kind of speaks the truth to power. And, uh, ultimately, he doesn't really listen to her. And. Because he doesn't have to. Because he doesn't have to. And. And that is, for me, that is now what Chasing Amy is about. Yeah. You don't have to listen to her because you don't have to. You can tell your own version of the story. You will feel good about yourself for the rest of your life. In my version, the big thing that's changed is when Alyssa's, whoever's Alyssa's friend is that she brings to the con. They don't really describe their relationship. It's just clear that no, they're it's, friends. It's clear. I think it's just supposed to be a friend of hers. Um, the, the actress, at the end, you mean? Yeah. The actress is actually Kevin Smith's sister. Right. Um, the only reason they even have lines there is that Kevin Smith's sister wanted uh, a few lines. Just Yeah. And, and again... The only reason that those women ex- exist is because one of them demanded a line. Mm-hmm. And really, what should have been written is, who was that guy? And Alyssa should have just said, just some guy who wanted me to read a book. <laughs> that fucking asshole. <laughs> you know, the idea that because she is making money and is successful, everything is okay now. Through the lens of 2016, it's just, it's, it's almost too much. I mean, it is. Like I said, I broke down several times watching this movie because I know how many people that I know now that are only a few years older than me, Mm -hmm. that they saw this movie and felt that. 
and felt that the first time they saw it. Yeah. And for me to kind of go back and say, well, you know, I have a lot of issues with him, but I've always really loved chasing Amy and Mallrats. And I know I've already been rethinking how I feel about Mallrats for a variety of reasons. Um, But I, I look at this movie and I'm like, he's the one who got the movie made. Well, there was a queer filmmaker at that time period telling the same fucking story. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's it's interesting. I mean, not only are I mean, there queer you know, filmmakers, but you know, Kevin Smith is openly, I mean, has openly said that he was inspired by like there's shots in Chasing Amy that are very specifically kind of inspired by Spike Lee, for instance. Kevin Smith has a deep respect for marginalized people. He just seems to, I mean, but he makes films for his audience and from his perspective and doesn't seem to at least at that point he did not get the appropriative nature of what he was doing you know i think the idea that he is making movies where he is creating sympathetic schlubs Mm -hmm. it's like look look at the sympathetic schlubby white nerdy guy yeah don't we kind of feel bad for him haven't you kind of been in this situation before Nice guys never really get the right thing because they just say the wrong thing and they don't get it and they put their foot in their mouth. And But shouldn't we feel bad for them? Shouldn't we feel bad for them because that's not what they really meant. Well, and of course, the perceived audience for the film is that same person, right? Exactly. And so, like, it's it's pandering to people like Holden. People like Holden are the perceived audience for the film, you know? And I didn't know that when I first saw the movie. I mean, I it, didn't know that it should this have been... movie was not actually about learning the lesson of chasing Amy. Mm-hmm. This is about Holden learning that lesson. We don't learn anything about respecting people. Yeah, the marginalized. The, the marginalized. Yeah. They are not given any more voice. You know, like like you said, the only time that um, we hear the words that Hooper X says actually listen to are when they come from the fucking asshole who made the movie and inserts himself into the movie i'm sorry i have more rabid feelings about him now than i used to and i've met jason muse and he's a wonderful human being he's very kind very giving to his fans whatever like that's the closest i can say about knowing anything about these people personally Um, you know i but there is just so much in his movies, he forces to feel personal. Mm-hmm. The reason you're supposed to love Dante, the reason you're supposed to love Holden, is because he is the every guy. Yeah. He is the every Joe. And if he was really wanting to admit his failings, he, he would have actually apologized. And he doesn't. We get you know, a fucking panel of a comic. Mm-hmm. Where that it says, says I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. Yeah. He never says it. The word bisexual is never said. There are oh, things that oh, are just hold never on, said. Hold on. Let me let me tell you the the real kicker in the with the Leela story. Yeah. She identifies I am a lesbian. He's like, oh, you're out. You're like a lesbian. Yes, people know I am a lesbian. Like this is you know. She identifies as a lesbian, and then later on he says, you know, he refers to her as bicurious. And implies that, like, how old are you? You're 22? Like, implying that, like, she might not have known that she was a lesbian when she was 18 and saw the film four years earlier. Yeah. It is a travesty to me. 
that knowledge has ruined this movie for me. Because it used to be so important to me, and now it just feels like a complete piece of shit. I mean, I don't... You know, positionality matters, right? Like, there's still stuff I really like in this movie. And I don't know that I... I I I will watch it again. You know, I can I can promise you I can watch it again, but I will never watch it in the same way that I did. And having this conversation I think has been thank you for teaching me this lesson. I have produced this <laughs> podcast. And you know, really, I'm sorry, Shana, for hurting you. <laughs> it's just it's not just Kevin Smith. I think it is and Kevin Smith is representative of the larger culture. And the fact yes. that Kevin Smith is better then the like even yeah. by those standards Kevin Smith is still better. We live in a world in which the state of North Carolina is barring, you know, yeah. uh people transgender people from using uh Rest restrooms here. that they uh feel comfortable in, you know, etc. Like these 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 fights have not gone away. No. And I think it's it does speak to the power of the culture and the power of the internet that marginalized peoples are able to speak up and are able to make their voice heard. Leela today, and I hope that young woman went on to have a wonderful and beautiful career. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'll see if I can find her on the internet and yeah. send her a, a yeah, link Leela, to this podcast. Leela, we want to be your friend. We, yeah. We, thank we, you. We, we think you're great. You know, you you did the right thing, and you were courageous when you should have been. Um, but I think it's it's a very um, it's a good thing that we now that we are learning better and yeah. i don't know i don't know what kevin smith has to say about these issues in 2016 I, I i can't imagine that he would grow out of the degree of mansplaininess that this well, movie is he's 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 absolutely you know he's only gotten kind of bigger in the in the industry he is only kind of more um, squirreled away into his into his podcasting empire and into his other and he projects. named his child after a hugely problematic comic book character, which I'm not going to go into. It's a cute name. I don't blame him really, but still. Well, and and I and I think kind of where where I land is, you know, now we actually get to speak back, and I it's not me. Sorry, I'm not speaking for myself. Yeah, know? I'm trying to kind of draw some positive. No, is that. We can go tweet at Kevin Smith now, and, uh, you know, I, I will tweet him in the uh, tweet for this uh, podcast when yeah. it goes out. And um, hopefully people will, will listen. It's it's difficult because it is an artifact of a time period, mm -hmm. and I do try to respect it from that point of view. Um, but when you realize somebody that you used to like, who is really influential. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you know that person or if they're a celebrity or if it's a TV show or movie. When you find out that what you thought was the beginning of you really starting to invest in yourself was really one of the first things that told you to hide. Because ultimately, and, and I'm just kind of mm -hmm. explaining this because I don't know that we've explained it clearly on the podcast, mm -hmm. but... You kind of told me that this film essentially convinced you that there were two boxes, you know, lesbian and straight. As I, I mean, I can I look back and I remember now thinking how I knew what bisexuality was, 
and my friends acknowledged bisexuality and it was out there but this was definitely my exposure of like what would a relationship be like if you were to perhaps be bisexual or perceived as someone who likes both men and women mm-hmm. and it is not positive Hooper X literally spends every second of his life in public pretending to be someone he else. Yeah, absolutely. Because a completely as a, different to, to protect person. himself. To protect himself. To protect himself. To protect protect his um his income. His, his income, livelihood. His livelihood. Oh, are are these topics that are still important? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's it's such a I guess for me the frustrating thing is that <laughs> this is written by Kevin Smith. It's there. Like he's an honest enough, like self honest enough, like writer, and he's a good enough writer. Like yeah. if honestly, this was, if this was a I shitty... watch this movie and I say, man, who who wrote the better version of this movie? Because you know, uh, as someone who has been through an MFA process, um, and has kind of. A, a a perspective on what it is to be a writer. I know the people who get published aren't the best. Mm-hmm. The people who get published are a mixture of what's best, what sells best, what's currently trendy, and um, marketable, and uh, their connections. You know, that that that's ge- generally how things go. If you get published, I mean, there are very few stories where it's. You know, there are no true overnight success stories, right? You right. know. I mean, Kevin Smith was, was lightning in a bottle to some degree, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and I think, you know, beyond the gender politics, beyond kind of the issues mm-hmm. that we're talking about here, um, Kevin Smith is a very clever writer. He's a very yeah. good writer. He is one of the most harsh critics of his own, like, structural issues. Uh, one of the things that makes, like, Clerks work, despite the fact that it's, you know, two people talking in a convenience store for, for an hour and a half, is the fact that, like, he really knows structure, like, and, and he is, he is a brilliant screenwriter. Like, I, I don't, I don't think you can say he's not a brilliant screenwriter. So there's this thing, though, that happened when, when I was in the MFA program, that we, they started talking more and more about, okay, there is MFA writing. Now, mm-hmm. because you have little think tanks that come out thinking all alike, like this is what poetry is supposed mm-hmm. to be. This is what poetry is supposed to be. So then you have academic poetry that like doesn't speak to an audience outside of academic sure. demi anymore and it loses touch. So for me, the point of this story is to talk about hypothetically Alyssa and the minorities and how the white guy kind of is aware of them, but doesn't know quite how to deal with them. Mm-hmm. And he wants to be sensitive. He just doesn't know how. Um, and in the end, he closes him off and be- himself off and becomes a hermit and writes them a happy ending. Um, the ending of the movie is the ending Holden writes for the movie. You yeah, know? yeah, no, It doesn't I mean, feel like the actual ending of the movie to me. It, it it feels like it, it's kind of... I mean, the, the, the epilogue is definitely... It definitely feels tacked on. It's always kind of felt tacked on. Like, it, and you know, it feels like, you know, I honestly, like, you know, fucking Ben Affleck should wake up at the end, and that should be a dream he had, where yeah. he actually did the right thing and made up, 
with his friends and uh, really <laughs> did write something so magically good that all yeah, it had to do was in, end. When in reality, you know, like, I mean, the, the holding character basically, you know, he loses his best friend and, and his girlfriend and then he's just kind of, he kind of goes off. I mean, actually, you remember he's in Janice Hell at Bob Strike Back and he's like this guy is kind of, you know, like uh, kind of a loser sitting in a, uh, you know, he's still writing and everything, but he's, you know, that's that's maybe the more realistic, like, you know, hold an ending is he's and that's kind, my of a, point. kind of a douche, you know? Is like, instead of recognizing that he's just a douche and at least his friends kind of learn from the situation, because I do think that um, Banky ends up learning more than Holden. I mean, Banky, for all of the issues with Banky, Banky is Banky has a more honest view of what's going on. Like the mm-hmm. the scene where they're sitting on the steps, and you see both of their balls very uh, prominently displayed on the screen. You know, um, <laughs> where they're... apparently I did not care about testicles when I <laughs> yeah, was watching was, this movie. Yeah. I did notice Joy Lauren Adams and uh, Jason Lee's wife. Having uh, Carmen, lack of bras. Carmen Lee, yeah. Lack of bras through much of the film. Uh, no, but, no, in the scene where he says, you know, you're way too conservative for this girl. She's, you know, this, mm-hmm. this isn't, this is gonna end badly. Mm-hmm. Banky's right. And, yeah. And ultimately, despite the fact that he, I mean, in a way, you could argue, and mm-hmm. I, and, I, and you could make this, I'm not gonna push on this cause I, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you could argue that he's essentially doing this homophobic performativity specifically to push Holden away specifically to, uh, you know, and there is some of that, and as, maybe as a reaction to that, and maybe know? that's why I like Banky in in some ways, and it's still hard for me to watch him is because he still has a realistic perception of it. I would much rather talk to somebody who's like, yeah, I, I think that you're either a lipstick lesbian or you're a, or wait. <laughs> I think that lipstick lesbians don't exist, and, no. you know, dykes are only... Non-political, man-loving lesbian versus the bitter dyke. Yes. Or one or the other. Or the Easter Bunny. Or the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus. That lack of seeing a spectrum, and and I get that. I, I understand. Banky is a problem you can fix. Banky is someone well, who is actually seeing the reality of the situation. Holden is just fucking romanticizing this whole thing. And he's self-deluded. He's self-deluded. And that's and, and that's Kevin Smith. The the person who is who who has homophobic views, who has, you know, kind of negative views, but who is honest about that and who is, you know, mm-hmm. who who will engage in dialogue and interact is probably the person who's easier to talk to and easier to convince. Mm-hmm. I mean the problem with Holden is that Holden's a nice guy. And like, he thinks he already understands everything. He literally, like, how does he, how does he, like, com- convince Alyssa that he loves her? Or how does he, like, what happens? He literally parks in the middle of the fucking rain and, like, breaks down in tears and, like, has her trapped in the car. Mm. How problematic is that? And then she, like, falls it's, in love it's, with him, too? It's emotional abuse. I mean, so much of this... If you go over this movie and read in between things, he isolates her from her friends. He makes Mm -hmm. her lie about her life. You know, he leads her away from everything that she felt like previously identified her as her. Her friends are upset with her in a dickish way, I will admit. Like, it just feels like, meh, lesbian, meh. Well, they're they're absolutely, like, stereotypical, like, you know. They're a total stereotype, and it's those moments where it's just like... 
so hard to watch because buried underneath there was kind of a slight understanding of what's going on, but I don't even know where I was going with that. It just I think we're I, I think we've we've said what we need to say on this. Yeah. Um really I mean, it's fascinating. This movie is fascinating because there's so much to it that's so it's so well made, but it's coming from this very skewed perspective. And it has so many like really kind of interesting things that Kevin Smith is trying to do. And he succeeds at enough of them, but then fails so utterly on some others because he fails to consider perspectives that there are so many different angles. Well, and his, and his argument is, well, this is just my perspective. This is a slice of life kind mm-hmm. of thing. So I'm just giving it to you from my perspective. But, and but so therefore I get to, it should be I get to make, I get to make a, I mean, it's a small movie, but I get, I get to have a career making movies talking about this. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I will defend the fact that he is a very talented filmmaker. Um, you know, especially a very talented writer. Um, so it's not like he's a talentless hack, but, I do wish that we got more queer voices telling But there stories. is a difference between being a by-the-book excellent writer. By-the-book excellent, and it can still feel like it's just feeding you the same status quo. Well, or right, it's right. being I mean, edgy. The, and the, con- the content that he's choosing to produce is not, you know, the content of Chasing Amy is the problem. It's not the structure. It's not the form. No. It's not, it's it's the ideas that he is putting forward. And that, for me, is what is kind of, like, so, is endemic the right word? Of, um... Endemic of, of... I mean, of male writers today. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is like, oh, alright, so I gotta include some gay characters, right? Because they like the gays. This is what a gay looks like. <laughs> what um, a gay looks like, yes, no, that, that is, yeah, no, yeah. I agree. For me, watching Chasing Amy, which used to kind of, in the back of my mind, be the defense to the just kind of egregious, kind of sexist bullshit stuff in the Jay and Silent Bob movies and mm-hmm. other things. I go back and I'm like, why? This doesn't stand as a defense. Like, his entire movie career is, I'm a nice guy. And so now he's moved over, I'm a nice guy stoner. And I can speak relatively well about things. I'm charming. I'm self-deprecating. And, you know, it's it just feels a little narcissistic and pointless in Naval Gacy at this point. Whereas I, in the past, could look through some of that to see the actual, like, small bits of representation. But it's just, yeah. it's it's really hard now. Yeah, going through this process of talking about this film is definitely going to affect the way I feel about other Kevin Smith films. And, you know, I don't know. I, I still rewatch Clerks and Clerks 2 occasionally, so we'll 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 see. You know, but all right. I think that's it. Um, hey, why don't we do more queer films on this podcast as bonus episodes? How would you like to talk about Bound sometime? <laughs> I have actually never seen Bound, so we could you know who the it. you know who the sex advisor was on that uh movie who Susie Bright hmm. and uh two who at the time we believed were men writing for lesbians who now we know are both trans women so uh that's definitely going to that's the Wachowski siblings oh. that's their first film oh. lesbian noir 
lesbian neo noir with Jennifer Tilly and Gina Gershon with yeah. Susie Bright as the sex expert who taught them how to make sex scenes for I mean, and not that, that she is a bad choice at all. No, uh, she's a phenomenal choice. She's a phenomenal choice. I'm just like trying to wrap my head because I'm just going to be honest right now. Like, I would love to talk about that movie, but Jennifer Tilly is sometimes hard for me to take seriously. Well, well I, I think she also is in the film, so I think we'll, uh, you know. I haven't seen the film in a long time, but I think I think we should do some more queer cinema, and I would really like to do Bound with you and do another 90s queer thing and see how we uh, go for how that. How much I cry that time. At least it won't be as, as uh, emotionally heartbreaking as it was that I am now pretty sure I am no longer a fan of Kevin Smith. That's hard. It's hard. It really is. You gotta you got kill your heroes. Yeah. You know? And I, the film Chasing Amy meant a lot to me as a teenager. Yes. For really important reasons. Yes, me too. But it just has not, it does not hold up. No. Nope. And from, from a modern, from a perspective of, you know, we are now <laughs> radical polyamorous, you know, yeah. queer friendly people or you're queer. I'm, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable calling myself queer. I'm not queer enough. We represent a queer ideology, whether or not you are queer in action. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that, that is something that I recognize now. And, and one of the reasons it is so something that feels important to talk about now is because there it, we are in an era of romanticization of the nineties, you know, the Portlandia, the dream of the nineties is alive in Portland. The dream of the nineties was not complete. There are a lot of people left out of that dream. So people who are currently looking back at the nineties and saying, Oh, look at how progressive we were trying to be. Look at, you know, yeah. Let's try and be progressive and stuff, but for 2016, let's not just stay and romanticize what the 90s did. Um, I mean, let's just, let's just leave it here. In the worst parts of Kevin Smith's audience, you find the origins of Gamergate. It's the, those are the yes. people, you know? Uh, Absolutely. Return of Kings, all the MRAs, essentially, you know? And, um, and I, I don't <laughs> think that he, he is one. I don't think no, that not, Kevin I mean, Smith Kevin is Smith an active misogynist. Kevin Smith isn't. Kevin Smith reacts against that. But ultimately, even in the interchange with Leela, he's like, you know, I hate this guy for trying to, you know, be a douchebag. And, you know, because there's the guy who basically says, you know, after Leela sits down, he says, you know, give me your number, you know, like as a joke, you know, there's some guy in the audience. And so Kevin funny. Smith is, Basically, like, you know, I hate this guy, but I want his money. But I hate this guy, but I want his money. And you can see, he's making a joke out of it, but it's but, also, like, yeah. that's exactly where he is. But it's not enough. And, yeah, you know, if <laughs> if Kevin, Kevin, I will take back every word of what I had to say today in terms of, like, my opinions about Kevin Smith. If I see something that he has written or spoken yeah. or made that specifically repudiates these ideas from Chasing Amy. Yeah. So. So, um, so people who are big Kevin Smith fans in the audience who know more about the thousands and thousands of hours of podcasts he's produced in the last 10 years. Yeah. Uh, point me to that. I would, I would actually love to, yeah. to see that. If he has talked about contemporary queer issues and had any reflection on this movie, I think that that would be really interesting. Yeah. I did um, a little bit of like looking for my that, reflection but, on it yeah. though. Yeah. That, that's yeah. what this podcast was. Yep. All right. 
Find all our episodes at oyspaceman.libsyn.com. And uh, we're expanding. We're doing all kinds of different stuff now. I don't really know quite know how this is going out. This is still an experiment. But, uh, yeah, let's do Bound sometime. How does that feel? Sounds good, Daniel. <laughs> what would you like to do instead? I don't care. I'm like, usually it's the TARDIS is closed. Are we still in a TARDIS? Are we still closing TARDIS doors? Or are we like, <coughs> and for now, the queerdom is closed. Queerdom is never closed. Queerdom is never closed. Maybe we end every episode with the TARDIS is closed. Yeah. The TARDIS is closed. All, all binaries are false binaries. <laughs> all dichotomies are false dichotomies. Queer all the things. Queer all the things. Bye. Bye.